0: Uh, as you know, last week, or you may not know since I was, hardly had a voice two weeks ago, last week I was not absent for illness. I was absent because I was speaking in a church in Cincinnati, had a conference there. So I'm, during the break, we're going to do something different today. You've got about five minutes to go downstairs, get a cup of coffee, do whatever else you need to, and then get back up here. I'm going to give a report on what went on last week, what's going on with WHW Ministries, and if you travel, if you get on an airplane once a year and spend more than $180 for a ticket, you want to make sure you're in here because have I got a deal for you? <laughs> okay? I mean, you do not want to miss this. It. So it'll be a combination report and some other things that we have going on. I don't want to take up worship time with those matters. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with thanksgiving. Make your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study, let's make sure we are prepared for worship. We always take a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so the issue is that we need to come to the throne of God with confessed sin. Now, sin is only an issue between you and God the Father. It's nobody else's business. It's not a matter of some external priesthood or anything else. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The issue is that every single sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so the issue of confession of sin is not salvation. It is simply restoration to fellowship. It is related to what we have been studying in John, abiding in Christ, what we studied in Galatians, and walking by means of the Spirit. And so at the instant that we confess our sins, God the Father forgives us, He cleanses us, the sins are removed from us, it's no longer an issue in our day-to-day walk or fellowship with the Lord. The Holy Spirit, it now fills us, we are walking by the Spirit, and we can learn and be instructed in God's Word by the Spirit, since these are spiritual issues, spiritual things according to Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 we learn spiritual things through the Holy Spirit we have to be in right relationship with the Holy Spirit so we take a few moments to just have silent prayer and then I'll open in prayer let's pray Father, we thank you so much for the way you have worked in our lives, the way you have provided a perfect salvation for us, that nothing is dependent upon us, but everything is dependent upon you. That so you sent your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who has no beginning and no end, to become a man, to take on flesh, to become true humanity, unstained by Adam's sin, that he might be qualified to go to the cross as our substitute and dare to bear the penalty for every sin in human history. Father, we thank You that our salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And we thank You for the full revelation, completed canon that we have in Your Word that we may learn how to think as You would have us to think. And Father, now we pray as we study Your Word that You would help us to understand these things and apply them to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 and we will continue our series on orienting to the Old Testament. Orienting to the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 19 gives us the, I think, what some call the theological center of the Old Testament. Now the important thing in our study, as I've stated again and again in our study of the Pentateuch, is that if you do not understand some of the dynamics that are going on in these first five books called the Pentateuch, the five books, the Torah, also the Law of Moses, then you can't understand fully what is going on in the rest of the Old Testament. Now this morning, Lord willing, we're going to wrap up our study of uh, the Pentateuch so that we can establish that framework for understanding the rest of the Old Testament. Now Exodus chapter 19, look at verse 5. Verse 5 reads, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now we'll just stop there. That is the essence of why God has called Israel out as a specific people. They are to function as a priest nation in relation to all of the other nations. Now we have said that in order to have a nation, you have to have three things. You have to have a people... You have to have a body of law or regulations for governing those people and you have to have a land. God began the program, his unique program with Israel in about uh, 2100 B.C. when he called out Avram, Avram from the uh, Ur of the Chaldees and called him out and said that he would make him the father of many peoples, that his descendants would be innumerable like the sand of the seashore the stars of the sky and that uh, it would be through them that all nations would be blessed. And so now God is beginning to fulfill that part of the Abrahamic covenant by bringing out a unique people that have been in the womb of Egypt by analogy, and then we talk about the labor pains, so to speak, of of the ten plagues as God brought forth and gave birth to Israel, who is called his firstborn. Among all the nations. Now, firstborn does not always mean first in terms of time or priority. It means uh, preeminent. It always has that that connotation in the scriptures that it means that which is foremost, that is above and beyond everything else. Remember, Jesus Christ is called as firstborn, and yet Jesus Christ is never born. And we have to come to understand some of the nuances of those particular terms in the original languages. So we have seen that God is calling forth Israel. He calls them out as a people, and then he gives them a body of law, and that's what we looked at the last couple of Sundays as we have examined the uh, opening to the Mosaic Covenant. Now, this is based on what is called a suzerain-vassal treaty, and we need to review this terminology. A suzerain is a term that refers to a nation that controls another nation in international affairs, but still allows it a certain measure of domestic sovereignty. It also is a term that is applied to the leader of that nation or a feudal lord. And at this time, especially in the land of Canaan, still operated on feudalism, uh, you have a feudal lord to whom a certain amount of obedience or fealty was due by a a servant or a slave. So that's the meaning of suzerain. Vassal refers to a person who holds his land from a feudal lord and receives in turn protection uh, for homage and allegiance. Also can refer to a bondman, a slave. Or a subordinate or a dependent. Now, the suzerain-vassal treaty is a mid-second millennium secular treaty form that we've discovered through archaeology. Several treaties primarily operated um, uh, was used by the Hittites. Hittite Empire operated in the area that we now call Turkey, just not too far north of Israel, and a little bit to the a little bit to the west. Uh, This is a treaty that was dominated at that time. And so God uses that form. And in in my opinion, as I've studied covenants, and Lord willing, this year we will get to our study on dispensations and covenants on Wednesday night, I hope sometime by early summer. And we will see that God's original dealings with man from the garden, as we've seen a little bit in this study already, was based on a contract. God establishes himself in a legal relationship with man. That is why... It is so important when we come to understanding New Testament doctrines like justification, reconciliation, even confession and forgiveness are based on what theologians call uh, a legal or forensic concept. Everything that God does in relationship to man has its grounding in the law. It is not based on experience. It is based on uh, satisfying the righteous demands of God. We have talked about how God is perfect righteousness. That's the standard of his integrity. That God is justice. That is the application of the absolute standard of his righteousness or his integrity. And that God is love. And love is the that which initiates God in his actions towards his creatures. For God so loved the world. And that initial word therefore is a Hati in the Greek, which should be translated as a causal hati, which means because. It is giving the reason for God's action, that which initiates or motivates him, and that is his, his love. But what has to be satisfied, and that brings in the doctrine, of course, propitiation, which means satisfaction, what has to be satisfied is God's absolute righteousness. That is a judicial concept. Dikaiasune is, is a term that is uh, just uh, loaded with uh, forensic, judicial, courtroom concepts in the Greek language. So this is not talking about experience, the moment of salvation when you put your faith in Christ. You don't feel any different. You might, but not necessarily. If you're sick, you have the flu, you're running 102 fever. If you're hanging on a cross like the thief uh, when they were crucifying Jesus, you're just as miserable one second after you trust Christ as you were before. But you are nevertheless justified, instantly regenerated, and a member of the royal family of God. So what has happened, and and the more I think about this, and I've had some time to think about this last week, uh, although with this particular flu virus I've had, not only do my sinuses feel congested, but my brain feels congested as well. Um, It seems that the nation Israel, as a nation, is a representative of what goes on in the individual believer's life. Now that's not to say that that everyone in the nation is saved. I want to make that caveat. But as a nation, they are a picture of what takes place and what transpires in the life of an individual believer. They were uh, elected in Abraham. They are uh, redeemed at the Exodus. Then after redemption, they are given a body of laws, a code of conduct for how they will behave in the midst of the world now i want you to remember that concept those of you who will be here second hour they're getting ready to go into the land of canaan that represents the world and in our study in john we're talking about how the world is the enemy of the believer and how the believers operate in in the world so what we're going to see is the whole concept of the conquest is a picture of the believer's spiritual life as he pursues possessing the inheritance that god has already given us and we're going to draw out various parallels from that but in the Suzerain Vassal Treaty form, what we learn from this, as just historical background, it helps us to understand that covenant is the very essence of what is going on in the entire Pentateuch. God is establishing his contractual relationship with Israel. Moses wrote the Pentateuch probably on the plains of Moab as the Israelites were on the verge of going in to conquer the land that God has given them. And so he he structures it under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit according to this overall uh, suzerain-vassal covenant concept. And even within it, within this overall document of Genesis through Deuteronomy, even within that, subsections are themselves built on this model. So over and again, repetition, 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 Moses is writing, remember, Moses is writing to mid second millennium Jews. When they read this, they would not need to be taught about this. It would be so evident to them that this was a covenant that the entire document, All five books are in a covenant form. Subsections are in a covenant form. Over and again, this idea of contract between them and God would just be glaring at them so that they could not miss this particular fact. Now, as part of this contract form, you have an organization has a preamble, which we saw in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 22a. This is a subsection, the Mosaic Law itself is a section within the Torah, within the five books, and the Mosaic Covenant itself is built on the model of this Suzerain-Vassal Treaty. There's a preamble or introduction uh, just stating the one who is making the covenant, I am the Lord your God. Then there's a historical prologue who identifies the parties. It is God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then we saw that there are stipulations given. These stipulations begin with the general requirements, the Ten Commandments, also called the Decalogue. It's a good time for you to get your vocabulary in gear so you can understand basic concepts in the Old Testament. Decalogue means the Ten Words, which is a uh, trans- translation of the Hebrew which talks about the Ten Devarim or the Ten Words. Now we've already gone through in detail the Ten Commandments, but I want to go back and just pick up a couple of things I glossed over last time. Uh, let's look down at the Sabbath law. This is the fourth commandment, verse eight. I don't just—we talked about the fact that it was modeled on the six-day creation week. If the, the six days of creation were not six literal 24-hour days, then this would make this whole uh, commandment rather, rather meaningless. But the purpose for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the sign. The Sabbath is the symbol of the Mosaic covenant. Every covenant has a symbol. The Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah after the flood, had a symbol, and that is the rainbow. God put a bow in the cl- clouds, and he stated that every time you see this, it will remind you of the fact that I have promised to never again destroy the earth through water, through flood. And there are some interesting meteorological dynamics that that implies. One thing it implies, and Scripture seems to indicate in Genesis 2, is that there was never any rain or strong wind or temperature variation prior to the flood in the antediluvian period. And so you wouldn't have the meteorological dynamics necessary to produce a rainbow. So this is something that is totally new. God puts His rainbow in the clouds as a sign that this covenant is still in effect. Now, one of the interesting things, and I'll talk about a little more coincidentally in the next hour when we are in our study of John, is that the the Noahic covenant establishes human government, the delegation of judicial responsibility to the human race as exemplified in capital punishment. Now, there's a lot of discussion today in the news about capital punishment, and um, the Scripture not only authorizes Capital punishment. But it mandates capital punishment. And as long as you can go outside and when the weather conditions are right and you look up in the sky and you see a rainbow, that implies two things. Number one, it implies that God's not going to destroy the earth again by flood. Number two, capital punishment is still mandated for the human race and the exercise of judicial authority. Now, God in his omniscience, you always hear people get all bent out of shape over capital punishment, and right now there's a lot of talk about the fact that there are people, and there always have been people. I am not being insensitive. I am not uh, saying that, well, let's just gloss over it. I'm not at all implying that. But there have always been inequities in the application of human law. If you are to follow the rationale that is offered today that because somebody might be Some innocent person might be wrongly executed. The implication of that is, then let's not take anybody before any court at any time because we just might make a mistake. That's what they're saying. It's better to not do it than to make a mistake. Now, it is true. I would rather have a guilty man walk the streets than have an innocent man thrown in prison, but that does not provide a rationale for giving up on the practice and the execution of of, uh, a judicial system. It should motivate us And to strive as a nation to have objectivity in a judicial system that is fair and equitable. The problem is that man is fallen. We're all sinners and we're all going to make mistakes. But God in His omniscience knew that. To say that we should not do it because it would be, it's inequitable or it's not fairly practiced impugns the very character of God and is blasphemy. Now, I can't say that strongly enough because I am tired of hearing people who are operating on subjectivity and emotionalism and who can't think anymore, and the further our culture gets away from its Judeo-Christian roots and from the understanding that there are absolutes that are, what's the term they use in postmodernism, modernism meta-narratives that apply to all cultures at all times throughout every period of history, then we are on decline as a nation. And just watch the news, and if you listen to what's going on and the issues that are being raised in the current um, political debate that's going on over the election this year, what you will see is that this country is in serious, serious trouble. We are beginning to reap that which we have sown from the uh, legalistic, liberalism that came out of the Second Great Awakening. I think theology makes a difference. I'm not going to get off onto that this hour, that second hour material. (laughs) But the sign, let's get back to our subject here, the sign of the covenant, the Noahic covenant, the sign was a rainbow. That's still in effect, which shows that the Noahic covenant is still in operation, hasn't changed. The sign of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath. Now, a sign of a covenant is like a wedding ring. When you get married, you enter into a contractual relationship with your spouse. The sign of that relationship and of those vows is that wedding ring. Now, if you go before a judge and you have that marriage annulled or or you get a divorce, then you take off that wedding ring because it no longer applies because the contract is no longer in effect. Now, what happens when you come into the New Testament is the New Testament teaches that Christ is the end of the law. He's the end of the Mosaic Law. It was a temporary covenant. That was not meant for all time. That's why we have a new covenant. That's the whole argument in Hebrews chapter 6 is the eternal reason it's called the old covenant is because it's going to be replaced by a new covenant that will provide an internal dynamic for the fulfillment of all the mandates as opposed to an external dynamic. And so when the old covenant is uh, annulled and taken away, the sign of the old covenant is taken away. And the sign of the old covenant was the Sabbath, the day, the seventh day of the week was set aside in the ceremonial law of of the Jews for the purpose of corporate worship. And it was a sign of grace and a sign of faith rest, trusting in God to provide for them that instead of working, they would rest and trust the Lord. That's the fourth commandment. Another point I wanted to make refers on the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. This teaches the concept of respect For parents, this never ends. This is the idea that that parents are to be honored, and just as parents are to take care of their children and provide for their financial needs and to give them a start in life, that's the function of a wise parent operating on Bible doctrine, Then they set aside, they plan, they save, they invest, so that they can help their children get a start in life, and in return, when their children become adults, then the children are in turn When the parents reach an elderly age, part of honoring and respecting them is to help take care of them during that time and not just leave them destitute on the street. Furthermore, and one thing I want to add to this, is that a godly or wise parent, according to Proverbs, lays up an inheritance for his children. I've heard folks say, well, I just want my money to last as long as I do. That is not biblically correct. You want to establish a certain amount of wealth so that you can pass that on to the next generation. That is how a society produces economic stability. Is through the wisdom of laying up and saving. This is one thing that's wrong with, with the whole concept we have of an income tax is that it taxes your savings. It does not encourage savings. It encourages spending. And that's why the, in my opinion, and this is not Bible doctrine. This is my opinion. The best thing is to go to something like a national sales tax. It's going to hit everybody, whether it's cash or whatever else it may be. And if you buy something, then you—that's when you pay tax. So saving is encouraged, and tax and, and spending is is the only thing that is taxed. So if you don't want to pay any income taxes, then you just don't buy anything. And that is that. That is, I think, and it's equal. It's across the board. It affects everybody. You of course, you know, the wise thing would be not to put it on food, food items or necessities, things like that. So those that are uh, impoverished would not uh, bear that particular burden. But uh, those are just some concepts to draw out from these particular uh, mandates. Also, I think, I didn't bring it up the last time, but somebody always raises a question sooner or later when they get in the Old Testament about, about polygamy. And in verse 14, you have the command, you shall not commit adultery. The interesting thing there is that the word is adultery. It's not fornication. You cannot go to this particular passage, and you can go to other passages. I want to make that clear. But you can't go to the Ten Commandments and find a rationale for uh, prohibition of premarital sex or a prohibition of, of polygamy. In fact, later on in the Mosaic Law, the interesting thing is that God regulates polygamy so that the second wife is guaranteed her conjugal rights and her children are guaranteed inheritance. That shows that in the eyes of God, that polygamous marriage is legal and therefore sanctified. Uh, The prohibition against adultery was never understood to be a prohibition against polygamy. So that's just something to give your brain a little something to work on later on this morning. So the stipulation section of the uh, Suzerain Vassal Treaty form is expressed here. You have the general requirements of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 23 through 17. And then specific requirements in the Book of the Covenant, uh, Exodus 20, 22 down through 23, 13. And that is uh, governed under case law. Then the second thing we looked at last time was the ceremonial law. The Mosaic Law can really be divided into three sections. You have your introduction, sort of a uh, prologue, summary of the uh, basic underlying ethical code of the entire law, and that's the Ten Commandments. Then you have the civil law in the next two chapters, and then you have the ceremonial law, which describes the priesthood, which describes the activities of the of the sacrifices, the entire sacrificial system, the construction of the tabernacle, and the worship system, and we studied that last time. No, when we come to the end, I mean, when we come to the end of the um, Mosaic law, we see in Exodus 24 there's a provision for reading. That's the next category. You have stipulations, then you have your provision for reading the covenant, and then there are witnesses. This is all just part of the suzerain vassal treaty, some of the different aspects. The witnesses, and in, the, in Exodus, the witnesses are all the tribes on the one hand, representing the nation, and the altar of God, on the other hand, representing God. These are the witnesses. And then there is a detail of blessings and curses. Now, in Exodus 23, 20 to 23 are uh, a summation of these blessings and curses, but I primarily want to look uh, this morning at Leviticus chapter 26. So let's turn over to Leviticus chapter 26. What God does in this Mosaic Covenant after He gives them all of these stipulations, He then outlines the fact that He as the suzerain, as the great Lord, is the great King of the nation. And He is establishing the nation as a theocracy. Theocracy means the rule of God. The chief executive under the Mosaic Covenant, the chief executive in Israel was God. There was no president. There was no king. The chief executive is God Himself. So it is God who is ruling the nation and it is God who is the ultimately the commander-in-chief of the army. As we will see when God prepares to give them the land and all of this constitution is, pre- is to prepare the nation so that they have a governmental uh, procedure and a code of conduct once they go into the land. God is the one who will lead the armies showing that God is the one who gives the victory. That the battle is the Lord's. That is the key principle In this entire section, and by analogy, just as it is God who is the one who gives the nation victory over her enemies as she goes into the land, so it is God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Spirit, who gives us the victory over the enemies in the Christian life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the point is made in that analogy is that it is to be done God's way and not man's way. Now, as part of the contract, God says, if you obey me, there are going to be certain blessings, certain things that I will do for you. If you disobey me, on the other hand, there are ways in which I will discipline the nation. There are good news and bad news to put it in the uh, modern patois. The good news is if you obey me, you will have prosperity and the bad news is if you don't you're in serious trouble and this is outlined in Leviticus chapter 26 starting in verse 1 let's just read through the chapter i want to make several several points these are the blessings you shall not make for yourself first two verses outline the basic command it takes us back to the really the first two commandments in the 10 commandments you shall not make for yourselves idols nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, God outlaws all idolatry. He outlaws anything, any worship for any God other than himself because he is the foundation for the entire judicial system in the nation. He is the king and he demands absolute allegiance. Verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbaths. This brings in the fourth commandment and reverence my sanctuary. This brings in the ceremonial law. I am Yahweh. And here we have the use of the the sacred tetragrammaton. In the Hebrew, it's YHWH. It was brought over into English as Jehovah, which was a combination of factors. What you have is YHWH in the Hebrew, we don't know exactly how that was pronounced, but it's pretty clear because of names like a Zechariah, that last uh, syllable, Yah, is, is the um, first part of God's name. So we're pretty sure that this was pronounced as Yah, and we make a good guess that the last syllable was something like this, Yahweh. So this is the proper name of God that is always associated with His uh, contract, with His covenant, with Israel now, what happened in the history is that the Y see a lot of Germans did initial study in Hebrew, and the, you know in German if you have a J it's pronounced like a Y if you have a W it's pronounced like a V. So this was written as as J H V H, and then in the Hebrew the Jews, because of their respect for the name of God, never pronounce this name. It's the sacred tetragrammaton, and instead they pronounce Adonai, which is the generic term for Lord. And what they do in the Hebrew Bible is they would substitute the vowel points in Adonai, not the English vowel points, but the Hebrew vowel points. And so that yields something that would look like this, taking the consonants from the sacred tetragrammaton and adding the vowel points from Adonai. You get this compound word, Jehovah, which has no meaning whatsoever in Hebrew or any other language. But whenever you read Lord and you read through your Bible and you see it as it is written here at the end of verse 2 where it is written in um, uh, small uppercase letters that always indicates that the original Hebrew is Yahweh. Sometimes when you have the term Lord God and you have Lord in regular letters uppercase L and lowercase O-R-D but God is in small uppercase letters And that is Adonai, uh, or sometimes it is Adonai Yahweh, which is Lord God. And so they translate it that way. And the God is a translation of Yahweh. So you have to. All this information is in the preface of your Bible, but since most people never take the time to read it, I thought I ought to tell you this so that you would have a little bit of education. You'll be a leg up on 99.9% of Christians out there. Now we get into the blessings in verse three. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments. This brings in the conditional element to the Mosaic Covenant. The other covenants, the Adamic Covenant, the Edenic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, Abrahamic Covenant are called unconditional. And they are permanent covenants. They have an everlasting quality, as does the Davidic Covenant and the New Covenant. But the Mosaic Covenant is called conditional because its fulfillment is really determined by the obedience or disobedience of the nation. This is why it is also a temporary covenant and will be replaced by the new covenant, which is permanent. The interesting thing is the spiritual dynamic of, of the old covenant is human obedience. And it is, it is a failure. The Jews end up unable to fulfill it. They go into idolatry. They fail time and time again. And the point of this historically is that God is demonstrating that man on his own can do nothing to live up to the qualifications and expectations and demands of a holy and righteous God. And he—that that's the purpose for understanding God's dynamic in history is He is demonstrating certain realities so that no one can come back at a later time and accuse God of not giving man the opportunity. He is showing under the Mosaic Code why it is temporary that man on his own, on his own spiritual dynamic, cannot fulfill anything that God wants. He is a miserable failure. That's why it's replaced by the new covenant. When God says, I will give you a new covenant, I will place my spirit within you and my law within your heart. In other words, God is saying, you can't do it on your own. I will do everything for you. I have to do everything in salvation, and I have to do everything in the spiritual life. It is totally, that's why the spiritual life of the church, church age is totally predicated on the walking by means of God the Holy Spirit and the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in our life. That is why the spiritual life of the church age is not to be confused with morality. And the problem with almost every single major Christian denomination since about the 3rd century A.D. is that they have confused the spiritual life with morality and with external ritualism. A ritual without reality is meaningless. And a moral life that is not energized by the Holy Spirit is nothing less than legalism and is condemned in the Scriptures. Now, that this if clause, the conditional clause of verse 3, these conditions are what make the Mosaic Covenant conditional. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season. Now think about this. Now I know some of you are old farmers, but not all of you. Some of you like to grow your vegetable gardens and you're familiar with this. And God, is, This is very economic in the implications. This is an agrarian society. Notice God says that their obedience to Him is going to affect the meteorology. Now think about that. Their climate is going to be determined By their obedience to God's word. Why? Because God is the God who controls the climate. God is the God who controls the meteorology. I will give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until grape gathering. In other words, there will be continuous prosperity in the land. There's not going to be a gap between the end of the threshing season and the wheat season and the great season. There is going to be continuous prosperity around the year, year long. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. Notice security is not dependent upon the government. See, this is another little problem we run into. I keep bleeding over into what I'm going to be teaching second hour. This is another aspect because we're going to be talking about cosmic thinking in the second hour. This is another aspect of of cosmic thinking, it affected the Jews. What we're going to see if we get there this this morning in, no, in Numbers 14 is that most of them wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt because they had no spiritual growth, they had no capacity for freedom, they didn't understand personal responsibility, and when you have personal responsibility, there is no security. Because to the degree that you have freedom, to that degree there is no security in your life. You may make bad decisions and suffer the consequences for those bad decisions. And so they wanted to go back to slavery where everything was guaranteed. And people who want the government to provide a safety net for them through a welfare system, or social security, or any other financial scheme, are people who would rather be enslaved to government than have the freedom that God promises under the establishment principles of the Scriptures. And the more we see people in our nation screaming for some kind of national health care policy, wanting solvency in the the social security system, which is nothing more than socialism, which is as antithetical to the programs and principles of God as it can possibly be, the more we're going to slip into, into, into slavery and give the government the more and more opportunities to pursue tyranny and tyrannical control of people's lives. And our founding fathers understood this, but because the educational system in our nation is a public education system controlled by the government, nobody has taught these things anymore, and they haven't been taught these things in about 30 or 40 or 50 years. And so we are producing a generation now. Generation Xers and younger have no true concept of the historical foundations of this nation and they, if there is not a revival, see, the solution is not government programs. The solution is regeneration and growing to spiritual maturity. And until that happens, and unless that happens, we will continue on a downhill slide. Now, there is blessing promise. There is economic prosperity promise. It's not because you have managed to figure out economic law and tap into it and you have somebody at the head of the Fed that is implementing good policy to restrain uh, inflation, but because there is a spiritual obedience in the land. You see, the ultimate issues in life are not economic. They are not material. They are spiritual. Spiritual. And how a nation operates spiritually determines everything else. So God says, there will be security if you obey me. Verse 6, I shall also grant peace in the land. So there is uh, martial peace. There is a lack of war. So that you may lie down with with no one making you tremble. There's no fear of warfare. There's no fear of some sort of atomic uh, devastation you know that there will be peace in the land. I shall also, notice this, I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. Notice how God, if they are obedient, God is going to change the dynamics of that country. He's going to eliminate harmful beasts. He's going to provide a, the type of meteorology where there won't be any kind of meteorological or weather disasters and it will promote economic prosperity and uh, personal peace and security in the land. And if there is war, verse 7, but you will chase your enemies, they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. Now let me give you a little hint, a little foreshadowing. If you don't understand what I've just read, you can't understand Elijah. When Elijah comes along and tells Ahab it's not going to rain until I say it rains. What's he saying? He's referring to going right back to God's covenant promises. When Gideon runs out the Midianites with 300, and they've got about 30,000, what are we talking about here? We're talking about verses 7 and 8. When David, when David comes to Saul, Number one, I mean, the whole David thing, I, I, I preached on David and Goliath last week when I was in Cincinnati. And the whole David episode, when Goliath comes along, it says that Saul and the armies were afraid and they trembled. And those words go right back to the blessing and curses in Deuteronomy 28, because God says, Go into the land, do not be afraid or tremble. And what are they doing? They're afraid and they're trembling because they're, there's this giant there, which goes back to what we'll see in a minute if we get there, is Kadesh Barnea, when the ten spies went into the land and came back and said, we can't defeat them because there are giants in the land. There's the Anakim in the land. And Goliath is a descendant of the Anakim. And so Saul says, when David comes up and says, why can't anybody fight this uncircumcised giant? Uncircumcised goes right back. It's circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And what David is saying is that this guy has no right to the land because he's not circumcised. Only a Jew has the right to the land because God gave us the land. And then Saul says, well, what gives you the right to defeat, uh, to fight Goliath? You're not a soldier. You haven't gone through uh, military academies. You're not even enlisted in the ranks. And David says, "Well, I've been a shepherd. When I've been out with the sheep, what have I been doing? I have been getting into hand-to-hand combat, protecting the sheep. I have been killing the bears and the lions." Now, what is that? What What should you be think when you read that? You should immediately think that God said. That if you obey me, I will rid the land of harmful beasts. The point I'm making is that you have to understand these blessings and curses to be able to understand what's going on in the rest of the Old Testament because everything that comes from Joshua to Malachi is a direct result of what God says in this chapter. So God promises military victory and, and peace and prosperity. Verse 9, so I will turn toward you and make you you fruitful and multiply you and I will confirm my covenant with you. In other words, God is going to continue to maintain His covenant promises even in the midst of of their failure. He says, verse 10, and you will eat the old supply, clear out the old because of the new, so constant resupply. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you. Now, we have to take this literally. This is a prophecy of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If they are obedient, He is taught. And this never happens because they reject the Messiah. And that brings in the all of the cursings that start in verse 14. And it is only through the new covenant that's established at the cross that God will eventually restore the nation to the land, and make His dwelling with them and His throne in Jerusalem, and these promises are going to be brought over into the New Covenant and ultimately fulfilled there. That is why I keep saying that you cannot grasp the dynamics of what's going on in the New Testament without understanding this Old Testament foundation. Now that brings us to verse 14, uh, which is sometimes called the introduction to five cycles of discipline. Now, as an introduction, what I want you to understand here is that chapter 26 is the bless- and Deuteronomy 28, which reiterates some of these same themes. We won't take the time to go through that. That this is part of a covenant document. I mean, I just cannot make this clear enough this morning. This is part of a one-piece contract between God and who Israel. Not God in Rome, not God in Babylon, not God in Greece, not God in Britain, not God in the United States. This is a contract between God and Israel. And I want to make that clear because too often, too often, people make the horrendous mistake of trying to apply these things to the United States. This goes back to old Puritanism. It really does. They were coming to this country, it was a city set on a hill, and they and this was the new Israel and it all goes back to that. Now, I think that God does at times in human history, especially since Israel is out of the land, God uses specific nations because of their attitude towards the Jews, because of their positive volition to doctrine and because they're sending missionaries out to all of the various nations that God uses them as what we can call client nations. But Israel's not a client nation. Israel is a covenant nation. There is a radical difference between God's relationship to Israel and God's relationship to every other nation in history. There is no other nation in human history that God has entered into a covenant with, period. So these these cycles, while you may see these historical trends develop with other nations, they are not these five cycles of discipline or these blessings per se. Because these are part of what God is promising to do to Israel and to no one else. This is just one of my little pet peeves. You go over to I think it's first chronicles, maybe second chronicles, where you have the passage where Solomon says praise to God, my people, who are call, my people who are called by my name will turn back to me, then I will bless them and prosper them." I can't remember the exact quote. And every year, Fourth of July or some other time. You'll hear people trot that out, and you'll hear pastors preach on that, and they apply it to this nation. That's completely false. If you read the text, if you read the context of that, that is Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple. And what Solomon rehearses in that entire prayer are the blessings and cursing of Leviticus 26 and of Deuteronomy 28. And he is basically referring to the fact that if my people are called by my name, who are my people? who are called by my name Israel, the prince of God. It's it's Israel. That verse has nothing to do with any other nation in human history. And to even apply it in that way is to buy into, at some level, a presupposition of covenant theology. It's just false. Now, let's look at these curses because they are are fundamental to understanding what happens in Israel's history because, frankly, a little foreshadowing, they fail miserably. They are they're under the cycles of discipline more than they're under the blessings. And we'll really see that if we, when we get into our study of Judges. first cycle of discipline is the loss of health. includes the decline of agricultural prosperity, national terror, fear and death in combat, and the loss of personal freedoms due to negative volition toward Bible doctrine. Now, it's clear that these trends do take place because of the spiritual conditions in other nations, but not at the rigid level they do with Israel. This is verses 14 through 17. But if you do not obey me and do not uh, carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances, that's negative volition, so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever, so there is going to be disease in the land. Consumption and fever that shall waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. This would be emotional distress. This would be what we call depression. That the rise of, of an increase of depression has a is suggested here has a spiritual cause. Ultimately, it may have physical ramifications. I was watching some program on television this morning while I was eating my breakfast. They were talking about depression. And they were going on and on about how it was a disease. Well, with diseases like the flu, diseases like cancer, diseases like leukemia, depression may. I think the dynamic is that nobody's born depressed, nobody's born mentally unstable, nobody is born insane. The those are the result of a series of bad decisions made in handling the outside pressure of adversity. And what uh, that accumulates, and, and when you Convert outside pressure of adversity into stress in the soul, then what happens is it has a biochemical impact on your physiology. Now you're producing the wrong kind of chemicals. Now that has an interaction on your brain chemistry, and eventually that can produce depression. Now you can then go take Prozac and Zoloft and all the other antidepressants, and that will alleviate the symptoms. And you may have peace and tranquility and contentment in your life, But it is not the my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. It is a drug-induced calm, but it hasn't solved the root problem. And the Scripture says that until you solve the root problem, you're simply alleviating symptoms. Now, when people reach a point where they have to get on those drugs, then I'm not against them getting on those drugs because at least it gives them some sort of emotional stability so they can get to Bible class and they can learn the truth in the Word of God and find the ultimate solution and eventually work their way off of drug dependency. But the Word of God promises a peace, a contentment, a stability, a happiness that is far beyond anything we can ask or think or hope for or understand. It is beyond all comprehension. It is supernatural in source, produced by God the Holy Spirit, and that is available to any and every believer if they will walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. And so we have to understand that many of these things, while they have many physical, material, and maybe even chemical uh, causes, the ultimate, the root cause, according to the Scripture, is spiritual. It says, you shall sow your seed uselessly. In other words, this is going to have economic ramifications, and your enemies shall eat it up. Others will reap the benefits of your work. Verse 17, and I will set my face against you so that you shall be struck down before your enemies' military defeat. And those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when no one is pursuing you. And this means that they will have leaders within the government that are um, operating on policies that are basically tyrannical. Then we come to the second cycle of discipline which increases economic problems. You have economic recession and depression. An increased personal and individual divine discipline for continued negative volition in spite of the initial warning of the first cycle of discipline. Verse eighteen. If also after these things, you know, if this hasn't straightened you out and gotten your attention yet, you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. We're going to intensify the discipline. Try to get your attention. You know, sometimes if the sugar doesn't get you, then a two by four between the eyes might. And I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. In Deuteronomy, it changes it to sky like bronze and earth like iron. The point is in the metaphor is that these become like metal. There's no rain and the ground hardens and doesn't produce crops. So just as positive volition and obedience produce a positive beneficial climate, so negative volition produces a climate that is negative and produces uh, disa- uh, weather disasters and economic uh, recession and depression as a result of that. Your strength shall be spent uselessly, for your land shall not yield its produce, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Third cycle of discipline begins in verse 21. This includes violence and breakdown of law and order and the disintegration of their city. They will have uh, urban problems. If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. So we've already had to go up seven times, so now it's seven times more. And I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your numbers so that your roads lie deserted. Now, if you look at the David and Goliath episode, and David's out there with the sheep, he's having to deal with the wild beasts. Why? The nation is under discipline at that time. They've been under the heel, they've been in the fourth cycle of discipline under the uh, oppression of the Philistines for about 80 years at that particular time. And that is why David has to deal with the lions and the bears while he's out with the sheep. It's because the nation is under at least the third cycle of discipline. Then you have the fourth cycle of discipline starting in verse 23 down through 26. And if by these things you're not turned to me, in other words, if you still have a hardened heart and you're still bent on trying to live life on your own terms and you can act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you. It reminds me of Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us, but who wants God to be against us? Then I will act with hostility against you and I, even I will strike you seven times for your sins. I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence among you so that you shall be delivered into your enemy's hands. When I break your staff of bread, ten women will, break your bread, will bake your bread in one oven and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts so that you will eat and not be satisfied. So there is a tremendous economic depression and famine in the land as a result of the fourth cycle of discipline. And then the fifth cycle is destruction of a nation where they are act, the people are actually removed out of the nation Israel. They are taken under foreign domination, and uh, they only will be returned if there is a uh, turn of, to positive volition and a desire to obey God. This begins in verse 27 and goes down to the end of the chapter. Verse 27, Yet if in spite of this you do not obey me but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. So now this is the third sevenfold increase in misery. Further, you shall eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. You shall eat. They would be under severe military invasion such that there's no food left and they are reduced to eating uh, their own in order to survive cannibalism. I then will destroy your high places, cut down your incense. And this, by the way, did take place when uh, Nebuchadnezzar invaded the land and also under, I think, when the Assyrian, uh, when Sennacherib invaded the land and the Jews were bottled up in Jerusalem, uh, these things were fulfilled. Cut down, uh, I will, verse 30, I then will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and heap your remains on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you. I will lay waste your cities as well and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your soothing aromas. The idea of making your sanctuaries desolate. Jesus said that when the fifth cycle of discipline came under Rome in 70 A.D. that no stone would be left one on another in the temple. And that is the total desolation of the temple. So that took place. That was fulfilled in 70 A.D. as well as in 586 B.C. under Nebuchadnezzar. And I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled over it. You, however, and, and that, frankly, the condition of the land of, of Israel for much of the church age until the uh, Jews returned to the land and started introducing irrigation practices and a number of other things to bring water into the desert. It was just a wasteland. There was, nothing, there was nothing there. Well, I don't want to go on and read through the rest of the chapter, but it continues to show the devastation that will come upon the nation and the people will be, be removed from the land. Verse, uh, let's get down to uh, verse 38. But you will perish among the nations, and your enemy's land will consume you. you should, that should bring the Holocaust to mind. They, the millions of Jews that perished during the Holocaust, perished among the Gentile nations. Your enemy's land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies and also because of the, the iniquities of their forefathers They will rot away with them. So all of this shows that the misery that the Jews have gone through for the last 1900 years is because of their rejection of God and is a fulfillment of the fifth cycle of discipline promised in Leviticus chapter 26. But there is always grace with judgment. God never simply judges. He also provides a redemptive solution. Verse 40, If they confess their iniquities and the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Then, verse 32, skip down, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well and I will remember the land. What's the point? The point is that I made unconditional promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Abrahamic covenant and I will not forget them. They will be restored to the land and they will uh, literally be returned to the land. That happened in uh, 536 B.C. when they returned to, started to return to the land from the Babylonian captivity and it has started again. I think that even though this is not a regenerate nation in the land and the prophecy refers to a regenerate people and that is fulfilled at the end of the tribulation, I think we are seeing the beginning stages of this Now, as we see Jews coming from the four corners of the earth back to Israel. I'm not saying that's fulfilled prophecy. I'm simply saying that's setting the stage. These are the blessings and the curses. And it is the outworking of these blessings and curses that forms the structure for everything that happens in Israel's history for the remainder of the Scriptures. Now, I don't want to take time to go through the, the time in the wilderness after they left Mount Sinai. They spent a year on Sinai where they received the Mosaic Law, all the sacrificial laws, all the laws related to the ceremony. And then God promised that He would take them to the land. They followed this route. They start off. They come down to Mount Sinai. According to this map, is down here. I don't think so. I think it's more... In in somewhere up in this area maybe even in this particular area much further much further north but they do come up to Kadesh Barnea which is located uh, right here. Kadesh Barnea is fairly close it's within a day's travel from Sinai so that's why I think it's it's much closer in this area or maybe further up in this area but you've got to have about a day's journey to Kadesh Barnea and they encamp at Kadesh Barnea And they send out the spies into the land. This is the next major significant event in Israel's history. Now, I'm clearly passing over um, God's provision for them in the land. God took care of them logistically. This is a beautiful picture. This is the Exodus generation. They're carnal. They're rebellious. They moan and they groan. They they follow in revolts against Moses, revolts against Aaron. All kinds of things take place. Of, of that nature showing their rebelliousness and rejection of God's grace provision that continuously God provides for their daily needs the scripture says their shoes did not wear out their clothes did not wear out he provided manna every morning which was a type of food that appeared on the ground like the dew every morning and it contained all the nutrients they needed they just got bored with it because it wasn't a tasty diet it wasn't uh, o cuisine and it did not have all of the wonderful flavors that they were associated with. There weren't all the spices that they liked. They didn't have any jalapen- jalapenos or, or uh, in their language they didn't have any leeks and garlics from Egypt and so they wanted to go back. Which shows that people who do not have doctrine and who are not positive to the word and do not have their, their souls transformed by the word of God will not have capacity for freedom you don't have capacity for freedom, then what you will want is security and tyranny because you are afraid to take personal responsibility for your actions because ultimately you know that there is a God of judgment who is evaluating your life even in time. So they come to Kadesh Barnea. This is the edge of the land that God has promised them and they send spies into the land. Now they completely misunderstand the order. See, Moses gives them an order in Numbers chapter 13. And he says, you are going to go into the land to see how God is going to deliver it to you. He doesn't say go into the land to find out if God is going to give it to you. See, you have to pay attention to what God says to you. It is not if, it's how. They heard if. So when the Jews, when the spies went into the land, they came back and they said, we can't do it. We can't defeat them because three reasons. They have fortified cities and we don't have the armament to tear down their walls. Number two, they are giants in the land, the Anakim and the Rephaim. We can't defeat these these enormous 10, 12, 14 foot giants. And third, the people are like grasshoppers. There are so many of them will be overwhelmed by their numbers. And they misread the command of, of, of Moses and misinterpreted it. And when they came back, they sent 12 spies in, one from each of the tribes, and when they returned ten of the spies says well we can't do it let's go back to Egypt only two were faithful Joshua and Caleb and they said we can do it we're going to trust the Lord because the battle is the Lord's. the Lord's the one who's going to give us victory and so God judged the nation they were under that generation was under discipline and God said they would not enter into the land and this is comparable to the carnal believer who does not trust God they the land does not represent heaven. The land represents inheritance. Now, I don't have time to go through that. If you want to learn about what the Scripture says about inheritance, get the tapes from the Galatians series on inheritance. But inheritance has to do with the rewards. They're already, as a people, redeemed. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you going to reap the rewards and benefits of that redemption? What God's already given them. It's already there, but obedience is the key to enjoying it. And so the Exodus generation represents believers who are in rebellion against God and refuse to grow and develop capacity in their life to enjoy that freedom and so they go out under divine discipline and every one over the age of twenty is going to die before the nation can go in. So for the next forty years they spent the predominant part of their time burying people. If you work out the numbers you got about you have around three or four hundred funerals a day. And so there's a consistent reminder that they, have, they disobeyed God and would not enter into uh, the land. So the two major events that take place after Sinai are both at Kadesh Barnea. There's Kadesh Barnea 1 when they fail God and then they finally come back to Kadesh Barnea a second time and this time it is the, their children. So it shows that the children of the Exodus generation learned their lesson. They are prepared for freedom. They have learned the Word. They have been taught by Moses for 40 years and Joshua and Caleb are the only two from the Exodus generation who are allowed to enter into the land. Even Moses, because of his failure, is not allowed an inheritance in the land, which is a warning to church-age believers that we can enter into heaven, but we may lose rewards because of some bad decisions that we make in life. But God is always gracious and always, throughout all of this, we see God's grace and His provision of a redemption solution. So we will stop there this morning and come back to our study, our orientation to the Old Testament next time. And we will begin the conquest with Joshua as the people go into the land. We've looked at how God called out a people, how God provided them with a body of law, the Mosaic law, and then next time we will see how God provides the land for them with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word, to see Your grace, that You always provide a redemption solution. And the solution for us is in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty. Every single sin in human history was poured out upon Him. Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And that is potential. And it is dependent upon our acceptance, through faith alone in Christ alone, of that salvation. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, unsure of their salvation, that they would take the opportunity right now to make that certain. All you need to do is, in the privacy of your soul, is, is inform God of your faith in Jesus Christ. You don't even have to pray. All you have to do is believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins. That's what Scripture says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of joining a church. It's not a matter of denominational affiliation, or any other human factor. It is simply a matter of faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we studied and challenge us with them. In Jesus' name, amen.